This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning. Coming to you from the Wharton School Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto the famed Locust Walk, University of Pennsylvania campus, Cade Masty hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. I believe Audie Weiner is wandering these halls and will be in here eventually. You guys can get in here. Please do jump in here. Give us a shout. one 844 Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or drop us an email businessradio at siriusxm.com businessradio at siriusxm.com happy to hear from you anytime real time live during the show or during the week if we're being replayed and you're inspired drop us an email you can also tweet at us our handle up there is at wmoneyball at wmoneyball on twitter we follow all of our guests we occasionally post not a bad way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics we're here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern for two hours to talk sports analytics around the world. Lots of things heating up. Lots of irons in the fire. Fellas, what's caught your eye? Well, I've been waiting a few years to say something positive about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the time has come. So... I really believe, well, I, I think you guys know this stat. Since the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl in 2001, maybe this will come as a surprise to you. I mean, I, I, I still wait. surprised myself with that Well, fact, they, yeah, that's fine. Um, it's been, you know, 17 seasons. How many playoff games do you think the Buccaneers have won since 2001? Zero. Yeah, it's zero. So they have not won a playoff game. They've been in two. Um, so for those people that I've suffered for the last 17 years... We went to you the, and those fifteen other people have suffered. Yeah, we've suffered. <laughs> Let's remember a couple of pieces of information. It was the biggest line of the week last week. The Saints were favored by nine and a half points. Mm-hmm. It was the it, top choice in survivor pool. Well, so I in think. the survivor pool I was in, oh man, there were I no, I didn't take the Saints. There were three eight hundred people in the survivor pool. Three hundred and seventy of them picked the Saints. <laughs> that is beautiful. Three hundred and seventy. <laughs> now I have two picks. One was. A lock, in some sense. I picked your boy, Mr. Flacco. Anybody against Buffalo Woo-hoo. right now is a great pick. No, so I mean, I that's picked right, the Ravens right. at home. The other one, I went to sleep, and I was like, well, that pick's gone. And that was the Packers. Yeah. Oh. I had so, the Packers in my survival I, So that was another one that wow. seemed to be. But for the Buccaneers, look, you just do the math in the NFL. It's a road win. That already is a good start. It's a division win. That's already a good start. It's a team that made the playoffs last year, and I think many of us were happy the Vikings beat the Saints at the last minute last year, because we think Saints at Eagles would have been a much more competitive game than Vikings at Eagles last year. I mean, they're clearly a top 10 team, at least last year. Mm-hmm. The Saints were a top 10 team in the NFL. Yeah, And we're doing it, as we talked about briefly off the air, we did it with our backup quarterback, 
Ryan Fitzpatrick, who threw for over 400 yards, threw for four touchdowns, ran yeah, for one. You, you tried to talk us. You tried to talk to us about Fitzpatrick last I week. I tried. You to tried t- to squeeze it in there. Like, what right. Are you, what are you bringing this guy up for? No. Well, here's the thing. Fifteen year career. I've yeah. been reading about it. He's been around for 15 he years. Harvard. Doing, he's doing, doing, Harvard, right? He's a Harvard guy. It's magic. I mean, like, uh, he's, I mean, if you want to invest in variants, he is your no, man. No, but that's, I was just going to bring that up. So that's always been the knock on Fitzpatrick. He has actually, if, I actually have looked at the histogram, if you'd like, of his quarterback ratings by games. And there is nothing more bimodal <laughs> than Ryan Fitzpatrick. There's Hold on, one bimodal. It's not just a widely no, varying normal. No, 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 no. You can see the two next humps. game could easily be five interceptions. Well, how do you explain that? Why would there be bimodality in performance? I, I, I don't know. It's a great topic. It, maybe it, one of our listeners wants to call in at one eight four four Wharton that you know who's played football, maybe at the quarterback position that could say it. But literally, the fix magic not just, comes. The fix magic It's not goes. just let's say a <laughs> wide distribution. They're literally, at mm-hmm. least visibly. I, I didn't do a statistical test for whether a two humped normal, a mixture you. of normals, would fit better. But it looks too humped. So we've, we, Adi's dying to get in. I, I just got what here. I, what I really want it to be. What I really want it to be is. That's not the most exciting quarterback story of the weekend. That's what I want, Audie, to say. Oh, well, it's not going to be me because, come on. Come on, Sam Darnold, your team. I, I, I would, yes, but the thing is, that yeah, so my, my team is, so I, just, I mean, I'm going to take just a moment here, first of all, to, to say bravo. That was a really fan-driven speech. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that, well, the wees, I love that. You know, the we did this and Audie, we did that. I know, on. that's important. We's that's, okay. Yeah. New Yorkers don't do that that much. It's just a thing. It's a, we, well, we, that's a ridiculous We Yankee oh, fans. God. One more way New Yorkers should be pretentious. Could you be more pretentious? Yankee fans, but we, which we, which we are. That's the right, right, right. No, I'm uh, a pronoun. New Yorker. Oh, right. I'm not a New Yorker, and I just use oh. a lot of we. But, oh, but my you talk about Tampa Bay, but we don't. We, Adi, we do don't you have do something analytics? Smugness is uh, yeah, coming in waves. Uh, he's he's talking about um, making just this entire season reversing trajectory out of one game. Where do you stand on that, Kate? Yeah. I mean, nine and a half points, it's a big thing, but it's not its not unlikely. It should have happened at least I, once, I, 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 I twice, to, three times. I, want to, I like the fact that he started as a fan. He started with all this excitement. I, I want know, he has it. that. Sometimes and do you think this is so, season-changing, hey, Trey? Well, I'm just joking. I think it's the you know. following. Let me just but say the following. Let me say, though, yes, this is, I mean, Eric is not beyond starting out in the middle of you, you said know, what caught fo- my eye. Mm-hmm. Eric will start a football season midseason. He'll say, "Well, what I noticed is that uh, if you haven't need- noticed the world rankings in golf, then Tiger Woods is twenty <laughs> seventh now, twenty <laughs> first. That's the way he likes to start shows. So if he wants to start a show, say my team so, won. I, I mean, this, the honest truth yeah. is, is uh, as as uh, as someone who's who's more neutral on Tampa Bay, if anything, I would say that. Should we really be well, making? We New Yorkers stay well, neutral just in these. Quiet for in, in one these moment. I, I got the microphone here. Um, this is the. Uh, this is something that I think is is we should ponder. Is this something that we should be moving the line yeah. on? Should we really be thinking this is a different Great. team than we thought? And and I actually would say after. I mean, is there first of all? Can we ro- roll it back and our opening days? Highly unpredictable in ways that, well, that other other days in the season are are less so. I mean, obviously, congesting the fact you have information. In other words, we have very little um, information about how a team's going to do in the next season over the, the gap. It's very well, uncertain. Here's what I do know. Let me say a couple stats and things I do know. So of teams that make the playoffs in the NFL, oh, 73% win on week one. So there's a, you know that's not a minor effect size for winning the first week or not. The other thing I would say is, and this is the statistical question, so I'll move away from fandom for a second. Let's imagine the Bucks by the line were 20% to win the game. Okay, so their expected number of wins in the game was 0.2. They won the game, so that adds 0.8. I claim from 
I don't think this is a fan's point of view. Now you start to say to yourself, and this is what you guys were having a discussion off air last week during the week, maybe we just don't know exactly how good the Buccaneers mm-hmm. are. Maybe we upgrade a little bit. And so I'm I'm saying maybe I should be adding more probability to the other games, the other 15 games they're going to play, because maybe it's not the team I thought that was a .2 chance against the Saints. And even if it goes up .1 for each game, now I'm at well, it's a win and a half. No, no a win and, and a half. Yeah, plus and that's a lot. I mean, that's case, every that's what I'm season, thinking as a fan. But I think, every that, but season, I don't think that's right. I think every a season there's one or two teams that come out and come out of nowhere and surprise us and 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 contend for the playoffs. Absolutely, but we why don't know that after t- the first. It can't. Well, it can no, be. but why? Right. I'm asking what's your update. Yeah. I'm putting you on the spot now. What I have updated that it is that I have updated that it is increasingly likely the Tampa Bay is one of those teams. Oh come on, how much? A game and a half. That's a lot. Are you going to including the point eight that they've okay. already gotten? I'd give up. Well, no, they already yeah. got one. No, going forward, you got fifteen games left. Well, okay. What was the I'll, previous I'll, forecast? I'll Kenny, take. I'll take Eric's point eight extra games or extra wins, and I'll add maybe another yeah point two or point three to that. Yeah, I'll give them a full game kind of upgrade game and in a my half expectation. And going forward, so yeah, out of yeah. fifteen games, you're predicting one and a half extra games than the, than the previous. Well, the maybe starting w- closer to one. Let's, one. Let's put it in in more. In units that we actually work with, which is season win totals. Let's just right. okay. season. Win I have upgraded my expected seasonal from, win totals to by what? about by about one game. Well, they which just, is like they, they, they just won got one point game. Eight. That's nothing. They just got they point get eight. Started, so I'm, I have so he's next not to moving. Point he's I'm not, not moving, moving much. So you're not but moving. I am moving. Okay, that's fine. Eric, going but you're from, moving. They were at they were at let's say five and a half was their predicted win total. Five and a half for six. Five and a half for six. And so I'm going to move them to. I'll go over seven. Now, yeah. Okay, right, so, so you're moving you about an extra half a game above the game that they've won yeah. already. Well, they're, they were supposed to win a half, well, uh, just under a half of that first game, or no? They were, or they were the biggest. They were a ten point underdog in the game. So that's a, that's around twenty five percent. So you're giving them about seventy five point seven five. Another point seventy five. Okay, yeah. what what does Massey Peabody do? In, coming into the season, we had him expected to win six point two. All right, mm-hmm. six point two. And now we have him seven point eight. So that's that's, a, that's a real close to what Eric said. We, we're going we're going up going seven point nine. Yeah. We're going up one point seven, and let's say they got you know point seven five already. So we're almost going an extra game now. Look, that's considering the rest of the league as well. Maybe some of that comes from somebody else. Maybe the their division opponents. That's a lot. Are, I, we can, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm my intuition would have said that you Massey Peabody wouldn't have moved that much. I agree. We, the rank, if you look at their rating, we we moved them from about minus three point two four, which means against an average team on a neutral field, would expect them to lose by a little bit more than a field goal, we moved them up to minus two, which so is a lot. Up that's a lot. But that's a you're, 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 I've heard you speak about this a, a, a couple of times. This is this is something that you that the public generally moves a lot more than the, this this smart, statistic-minded money does. Yeah, but well, I well, think it, we have to it, make it a t- distinction between t- movement t- early in the season and moving late in the season, right? Agreed. I mean, we... Massey Peabody doesn't really know what's going on with with the, I mean you guys probably have the best guess of anybody about what's going to happen in this upcoming football season but there is just a really but, but a lot of uncertainty you bring up at the start of the season yeah right. but you bring right you bring up an important point after 14 or 15 games a win of yeah. .8 is what it is it's .8 but we're early on in the season we have very wide priors we now have a data point so we're going to upgrade them 
a certain amount. Of, it's a, apparently a point or a point, 1.2 on their scale. I'm not surprised at all that it's 1.5 in total above and beyond, given that there's already 0.8. Let me just give you another stat analysis. Well, let's, let's, no, I want to go to the Jets. Let's put it I'm going to get to the Jets. Same thing. Let's put it into units. It, it shouldn't be that surprising because now putting it into a rate. So with 15 games left, we're only That's talking 0.05 about... 0.05 per it's game. 0, it's, point, it's 0.05 per game. So it's not much of a change in the probability across all the future games. Well, yeah, actually, no, 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 a good well, way to put, think about it, a good way to think about it is if they were a 35 to 40% chance of winning each game, which you multiply by 15, that gets you the 6.2 win total. Then you're saying instead of being in the 35 to 40 range, they're in the 40 to 45% range for yeah. most games. I don't know why that's an unrealistic no, 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 You've you got to put yeah. it in the, in, the, in the realm of standard deviation. So yeah. 0.05 sounds like a, a little because the 0.5, it's 10% of, of – of, but if you put it in terms of the range from, okay. say, minus – you know, most teams, say the, the fifth to the 25th team, what's the range there? It's probably not very much. So you've put – Tampa Bay, you've moved them from oh. a, a lower half but, team but to an upper half team. But he's given you the scale. You don't believe... No, no, no. This no, is a, no this he's is... given them the scale. Cade told you the scale. They moved from a minus 3.24 to a minus 2, basically. You're no, not... but I need to know the range. No, no, I, I know. You're just telling me the relative know, the mean. I want to know what the range. You're not willing to give them one extra point now of the teams they're playing. We'll adjust that to standard deviations and ranges. He's saying it's a one-point adjustment. Why is that so huge? He wants a little bit more scale. That's fine. So we're going to drop the top five teams and the bottom five teams, say. And now I'm going to call it roughly from plus 2.5 to minus 2.5 at this point in the season. So it's pretty compressed at this point in the season. So a five, you could say five and a half points swing from what is... Brings him what percentile to what rank to what rank. It's It's a big jump. Yeah, so we're t- a one point swing at this point is going to move them. I mean, they were coming up from the kind of the bottom, and so it's not. It's it's. So they went from the bottom. It, to... it's, it's harder to move when you're in the tails because there are bigger gaps there. So you're going to move four or five spaces, four or five rankings, four or five. And by the way, if you look at ESPN, I looked obviously, obviously after they won the game, I went and looked at all the rankings. In most, they moved from like thirty-one yeah. to twenty-six. Yeah, and, and again, it's because down at that bottom, I mean, we don't really have a lot of certainty yet about what the ba- who the bad teams Buffalo, are. We were Other pretty than sure Buffalo. We were pretty sure Buffalo was the worst. Yeah, no, we, we were pretty sure Buffalo was the worst. <laughs> and they and, lived down to it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, and, other other big, right, so, other big performances. Well, Darnold really, was a big performance for 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 we Jet fans, and uh, uh, well, that's okay. No, you can say you can we, call we fans. It's apparently, <laughs> no, it's, it's, I didn't grow up doing that with with the Yankees, uh, but the. Uh, but I, and thing is, I was very excited about their victory. But then, if you unpack it, you realize I think he scro- he sh- he um, threw for two touchdowns. And I, even though they scored forty eight points, it was, he was like a the blowout. first Jet to throw for two touchdowns his debut. They kept flashing that stat yeah. up on the screen. Right. Like forty eight points. Was that the most impressive stat they no, could the, find? I think. The, I think so the, did he play well? Let, let, let me say the thing. Your, so eh. first of all, he completed seventy five percent of his By passes. By Jet standards, his yards <laughs> per completion were almost ten. That's what people are encouraged about. Right. The third thing that people were very encouraged about is if you watch the game which i watched a lot of it the first play from scrimmage he throws a pick six the other direction yeah now you start to say to yourself okay this isn't going to go well but i think the part you have to be encouraged about is after that he pretty much played a flawless game and so a lot of rookies flawless is no no no, i'm just saying a lot of rookies would have said wow now i have to press i have to do this do that i think people were excited by his poise especially Poise is a word that kept getting used in all the news articles you know he's 21 years old this is amazing and very rarely do you see a starting quarterback so by the way and of course the other narrative you now hear is 
boy, the Giants are going to rue that day they took Saquon Barkley instead of Sam Darnold. That was all over the New York radio. After one game? After one game. Well, that's rivalry. How did Saquon Barkley do? He ran 20 rushes for 110 yards and a touchdown. He broke a 70-yarder that looked absolutely amazing. He had a great day. Yes. Good. But I have another stat for you. And a statistical calculation, which you'll enjoy. I hope so. So the rookie coaches, rookie coaches, were 0 for 7. So that means... I'm so sad John Gruden lost. Yeah, I'm oh, sure. Oh, yeah. No. I'm sure. That's right. But let me tell you their expected number of wins, and then I'll tell you the standard deviation of it, and we'll see how surprising it was Excellent. that they were 0 for 7. So let me just first tell you the betting lines. Um, the Giants lost, rookie coach. They were plus 3. The Bears lost... They were plus seven and a half. The Cardinals lost. They were minus one. The Colts lost. They were minus three. The Lions lost. They were minus six and a half. The Titans lost. They were minus two and a half. And the Raiders lost. They were plus four and a half. So, so half, those, half favorites or so. So they should, have won, they should have won at least Who's three. Arizona? Arizona? It was playing that they were favored. Yeah. Arizona was playing the Redskins and got blown out in that game yeah. in Arizona, by the way. So that right. we may have okay, to. I'll be interested to hear in just a second yeah. how the Redskins have moved up in Massey Peabody. The expected number of wins was three point one two eight out of those seven, and the standard deviation of the total number of wins was one point two five. And so we're at a little over two, two and a half standard deviations. If you make kind of a normal approximation, we know Not it's... bad for two standard deviations always, by the way. Yeah, but I'm just saying, so it wasn't like, oh my God, this is the most, you know, it's not our one in 10,000 kind of thing, but it was a little <coughs> surprising. But probably if you ask most fans, they would have said, this is massively surprising. And it's two, two and a half standard deviations away. It's not... You know, these things happen quite yep. often. Yep. That was the calculation I did because there was a big statistic. I, it's a very nice. It's it's a nice use of the very simple mean standard deviation to figure out rarity. Exactly, and that was so that because that was a big thing that rookie coaches went zero for seven. I was wondering how rare is it, and so you can just do a simple binomial calculation to figure out, and it's about probably you know two percent. This is this is Wharton Moneyball. Of course, you guys can jump here and join us if you'd like. The number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine. Four two seventy eight sixty six. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. All four hosts are in here. Adi, Shane, and Eric are with me. We're opening with some NFL, of course, following week one. Guys, I can give you a few updates. Um, our numbers are going up later today. We talked about how much we update on Tampa Bay after that win. What about the other side of it? How do you update New Orleans? We had New Orleans coming into the weekend as the number one team in the league. Coming out of the weekend, Still number one. We did not. Interesting. We thought they had a great. Ga- we thought they had a great game. They had a fantastic game. I'm a little surprised they go in as number one to start with. That's they were they hmm. in Minnesota. We had New England number three coming in, which is a little interesting. So, so how did how did you arrive at that conclusion? I mean, because I spent some time uh, over the weekend, sort of looking at forecasts of this year that have nothing that takes nothing into account what happened in the off season. So and New Orleans doesn't come up that high. So what happened? They, they should be pretty high. They're high, but they're not the highest. Yeah. I mean, well, of course, the highest it just has to be New England if you just use raw stati- historical statistics. It's hard to avoid that. Um, well, what, that's what all we're using. That's literally all we're using is raw. St- so you don't use stats. any. I mean, so how do you deal with say the, the the question mark on Brady every year? He gets older. Everybody gets older. We have but, age curves. But, we have age curves for our quarterbacks, and so he, we're just looking at history. Because I think that's that's probably one of the things is you have to put in some probability there that he's going to fall off a cliff. You know, it's it's 
what's true is that the most power we get out of our age curves on quarterbacks is the growth over time, not the decline, not the decline. at the end. There's very little data it's on that. It's interesting about <laughs> it is interesting about New Orleans because, you know, I assume please correct me, offensive stats obviously play a big role. I would mm-hmm. assume in Mass C P by Mac they drive most ranking systems, more so than defense. Um I would you, say more, but it's not. It's I didn't not say like I didn't say it's huge. four to one, yeah. but it's slightly more. If you get rid of what Tampa Bay did, let's just focus for a minute on what New Orleans did. As always, Drew Brees, I think, completed, I'm going to say 90% of his passes. It might have been 88%. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Threw for 450 yards and five touchdowns, yeah. which is what he always does against Tampa Bay and pretty much every other team in the NFL. So I'm pretty confident if New Orleans continues to score 40 points a game, New Orleans is going to be fine. And, um, yeah, New Orleans, the only thing that surprised me about New Orleans is that their defense, like how does Tampa Bay put up 48 yeah. points right, with, against them? I mean, them this is kind of conventional playing. New Orleans. I mean, this is New Orleans as we kind of know them, right? They are have an amazing offense, not a very good defense. Last year they kind of surprised us by having a pretty competent defense, and, you know, therefore they were one of the top teams in the league. Let's Correct. Talk, let's talk about some other big moves after week one. We talked about the fact that going into the season, because you have weaker priors, you're more fluid early mm-hmm. on. You move teams more. You, yeah. you do react more optimally. You react more early in the season than you will late. So there are some other big moves. So, for example, our local boys. The g- giant. Ten-point drop, ten, ten ranking spot drop for the Eagles after their – you know, weak showing on Thursday night yeah. against the Falcons. So they won the game, but they won it in is about it because, as ugly uh, fashion because as play can. success I mean, was, was so weak. Yeah, play, was, su- yeah. play I, success is a good example. It's the single most important statistic, offensive play success, and they were I'm sure they were low on that. And by the way, I, I assume since we've talked about those two teams now, obviously you guys know this week, I'll be at the game, it's Eagles at Buccaneers. So all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm looking at that game and I'm saying to myself, I'm interesting. Not, I'm very interesting game. <laughs> interesting. All of a sudden, yeah. it's a game down in Tampa Bay. It's in Tampa okay. Bay. The game's in Tampa, and you know, again, the reason I was also excited was let's. I really want to repeat what the Buccaneers' first three games were at New Orleans seemed like a certain loss. Oh yeah, you were home you were. to the Eagles seemed like a certain loss, and home to the Steelers seemed like a certain loss. Yeah. How did our Steelers? How are our Steelers oh right goodness, now? The did they Steelers. drop? No, no the, the, they did not. Steelers, we have up two spots to the number two spot in the league. Tying Cleveland after giving up a 21... I mean, I know it yeah. doesn't look at in-game stats that way. Steelers looked awful They did. In that I game. mean, no team was trying to win that game. It could it, Clearly, so, so neither team we, was really interested we dropped, in that We game. dropped Cleveland seven spots and bumped Pittsburgh up. We believe that Pittsburgh dramatically outpaid Cleveland in that game. They did, except Ben Roethlisberger threw four picks, and yeah. they had two fumbles. If yeah. it weren't for the six turnovers, so that's not Steelers gonna, that's win that game by 21. Exactly. So I that's, saw that's an interesting kind of stat. Plus... It, it, Teams that have a plus five turnover differential, which they had in that game, which the Browns had in that game, or something like a hundred and forty-eight, four and one, <laughs> and Cleveland is like the one, oh two and one, <laughs> like they are. That's amazing. Nobody gets it's back. Pretty it's pretty incredible. Or maybe they're two, two and one. This but is why like, Cade's points really important. Yeah. Why you ha- you can't just look at the outcome and say, well, I guess they're as good as a. St- None of us believe the Steelers are going to turn it over six times a game. And can, even conditional on that, Cleveland couldn't win the game. Yeah, but this is interesting. He's essentially saying that the interceptions and the, the turnovers 
are not affecting his statistical analysis of future performance. It moves him some. I mean, I th- and, and, it, it just just not. It doesn't move it as and much. I as it, the, it I the fans it, think it's gigantic. It doesn't move it as much as it moves the outcome of this game. It I has a much weaker right. effect on future games. Kind of a question. I mean, to Eric or whoever. Though this is kind of one of yours, you know, free, frequent uh, comments talking about aging curves and and you know in tennis or or golf. You sort of. The way you often talk about aging is kind yeah. of a, a higher variance. That's Correct. really what it. I really do believe it, it that. does. Sort of like, you know, Big Ben is getting older as well. Absolutely, Ben Roethlisberger is getting older. Could it be that part of you know his aging curve is just to go higher variance? Like, he, I mean, because honestly, the last the last two games I've seen, the one against Jacksonville in the playoffs, he was unbelievable with some errors. This game, he was very error prone. You know, maybe part of what makes Drew Brees and Tom Brady extra impressive is somehow, you know, that that variance that you know comes with aging hasn't really kind of worked its way its way into their games. Whereas I, Big Ben is maybe aging a little bit more normally for a quarterback, go and which means higher variance. Eli Manning being another one that is perhaps higher. It's variance. an interesting way to think about it. And I'll say the following: um, age, as they always say, age is undefeated. I don't think anybody in this room <laughs> believes that Drew Brees is. I mean, if you every stat suggests even he's declining mm-hmm. now, but he's still great. But I think we'd all take a declining curve, but one with low variance. And I agree with you. I think that probably is why people are so impressed still with Brady and Brees, and maybe you can include in that group now Philip Rivers. Mm-hmm. These yep. guys just don't have. It's rare that they have just awful games. If you look at Ben Roethlisberger's last 20 games, I'm pretty convinced you would say 10 of them have been great and 10 of them have been awful. <laughs> like, he's had some really awful, So there, awful there are games. some consequences in the in the AFC, what is that, North? North. I, I still want to call it AFC Central. Um, AFC North, because going into the season, we had the Steelers. Of course, we think that they're the one or two best teams in the in the, in the the AFC. I'm sure you must have the Ravens now winning that well, division. Well, we, we had, to win the division, we had the Steelers almost 40%. And we had 39 and 31% to Baltimore. Coming out of the weekend with Baltimore's great showing against, albeit the weakest team in the league, we they ran up six spots in the rankings. And now in that division, we have Baltimore with 38% and Pittsburgh 34 So it's still close, but we flipped we flipped that. And that's despite the fact that Pittsburgh jumped up a little bit. Yeah, look, I was uh, it was just it was just a great week one of football. L- let me say the, the, on that point about Pittsburgh, I think this is the time of season where you want to say you, you you there are things you can reasonably react to and things you shouldn't overreact to. And the the one thing you shouldn't overreact to is inference. You you haven't learned that much about your team. You shouldn't say they lost the game, they're terrible. But, but what yep. you can reasonably react to is if they lose a game, they've set themselves back. They have a harder chance. Even if they're the exact it's a short same, season. Even if they're the same team said, you thought they were. I just were. said seventy yeah. percent over seventy percent make yeah. the playoffs. Let me just say by the way. It's not like Pittsburgh was a... I couldn't believe the betting line in that game, and they weren't that off. I mean, Pittsburgh was only a a 3.5-point favorite in that game. Mm -hmm. It's not like Pittsburgh was a 10-point favorite going into Cleveland. So, I mean, it's just by the betting line odds, it wasn't that surprising. Can can I ask ask a simple... What fraction of teams that win nine games make the playoffs? Nine nine or more. 
I'll bet it's 70%. Oh, nine or more? Nine or more. Nine or more. Well, nine or more. It's, nine or more. That, yeah. At least three quarters. Three quarters. I would say it's probably... Uh, right at nine, high. I would say it's like 50-50, right? Or, I would have thought a little higher than 50-50. At, at nine, or more than... I'm asking... North. So essentially what I'm saying is winning a, uh, the first game, I would, even if you're 50-50 going out, you're in a good position to make the playoffs if you're a, just an average team. That's interesting. That's a nice point. I it's like a it. very it's a very good point. I would I would have guessed nine... Would have been less than fifty percent, but that's just I. I yeah. I'll do, we can go ahead and do the analysis. Well, I'm actually saying nine or more. I would guess yeah. that a, a chunk of this. A I thought you were chunk asking of exactly. No, not nine. exactly nine. I mean, basically, I'm looking what's the bottom threshold for making the playoffs year to year, and what fraction? Where is that? And I see. If, yeah, if, yeah. It's usually like yeah. It's sometimes you can actually get eight and eight teams. Sometimes you can. Yeah, exactly so you that. can get seven and nine I mean, teams the, making the, the playoffs. The basic point was that winning rare. a game is, is a lot, and if you're unless you're a terrible team, and then you won that game sort of on luck. Um, well, most of them will do well. So we have a stat here. The past 10 seasons, 28 teams finished 9-7. and seven. Of those 28, 13 made the playoffs. So I told you it was slightly less than 50%. <laughs> right. But that's 9-7. You're, you're, you're on. Right good. on the knife edge. So any other top performances from this weekend? We've identified Tampa Bay's, Baltimore's. We talked about Cleveland being a little fluky with that tie. Well, the, uh, let me just point out one other team we've talked about briefly, but one other player on that team. So the, when the Redskins routed the Cardinals... And then you looked at 100 and roughly 70 all-purpose yards for Adrian Peterson. You have to, you know, that was not bad for a 33-year-old who I think he passed Jim Brown, by the way, this weekend in terms of his all-time running. Is that right? He did. Yeah, I mean, Adrian Peterson's an all-time great. I mean, there's no doubt about that he's an all-time great. But I think he had 98 yards rushing and 70 yards pass completion, but but basically 170 all-purpose yards. And I'm I'm interested to see. I'm glad you said that the Redskins, got. I assume, got a bump up. They did. They're up five spots. They're in our top ten. I don't remember the last time I've seen the Redskins in our top ten. And They're at number eight. I'm not surprised. Can I, 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 before we take, uh, I'd like to round out a... um, we we follow the draft very closely each each year. Can we get a quick report on the top draft picks? How they did this in this first game? And we we talked about Barkley. We talked about Darnold. How about the other five or six? Josh Allen came in and was much more impressive than his predecessor. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure about that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, so he Josh, Josh Allen, Allen came in for the Bills, and he, he's backing up the what most people believe is the worst starting quarterback in the NFL, and quite got, possibly. The NFL and so why is he backing him up? Not, not yeah, starting. Well, that's a, well, that's a great no, question. No, it, this would be the argument. Why yeah. is that? Um, currently, the Bills are not a great team. Mm-hmm. Any nobody would be that successful with it. Why put in a rookie? You know, have him get sacked all the time, have right. him develop bad habits, etc. When let's use Peterson as the sacrificial lamb. Let's let him play for the first six or eight games. Maybe if the Bills start to improve, you put Allen in. That's why. Okay. That, that's the argument. I just Peterman is just so incredibly poor as an NFL quarterback that I yes. think they're going to have. That. I mean, they've already kind of made that move, right? I, I, yeah, I, the others? I, if Nathan Peterman gets another the start, others are, are not starting. They're so not starting. Mayfield okay. is behind Tyrod Taylor in, in, in Cleveland. By the way, there's and, nothing that Tyrod Taylor did that suggests he's not going to continue playing at right. least for a while. Tyrod mm-hmm. Taylor looked fine. That's that's what we expected coming in. and then You and even then, said it last week. You said they're going to be improved. And well, let me you, tell you, you, they're improved and Tyrod Taylor looked fine. And you want, you want, these, guys, you want these guys, in my opinion, to get a year under their belt. It's like giving a freshman in college a redshirt year to learn systems. I mean, I mean, Sam Darnold had a freshman year as a redshirt. He didn't have to go. These days they're throwing the kids straight in. He didn't have to do that, and he came out as a redshirt freshman and played great. You kind of want that redshirt year for NFL quarterbacks. Josh Rosen might get it in, in Arizona. 
He's not starting it either. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mayfield might get it some this year. So th- th- that we didn't see them all. Okay. Um, so Darnold was the real standout of the. Of well, the, Barkley was the real standout, I think. I, I was talking about other quarterbacks. Oh, yeah. I, and I, I heard great things about Barkley, but I didn't see his performance. That was really all right, guys, impressive. that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Our fourth collaborator, Audie Weiner, just walked out the door getting ready for class this morning. We will be here for the next hour and a half where some combination of us are here anyway. Every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, you can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or you can drop us an email, Matty Dats, producer, boss man, waiting for your email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or add us on Twitter. We're at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall is our handle. You can send us questions, comments, observations. You can send us over-under suggestions for the segment of our show. We're still going to... Keep the over-under segment as we go through the football season. I'm going to season. tweet my Owen 7 rookie coach analysis. I'll put that up on at WMoneyBall. Right. Eric's got, some, Eric's got some, some recent number crunching for the week one NFL outcomes. We have spent most of our time so far talking about NFL, but in this next half hour we have a guest coming in, a return guest for the show, Phil Wagner. Phil is the CEO and founder of Sparta Science. This is a Silicon Valley company that is – um, has this force plate technology that they've successfully launched and are now working with universities and teams around the country and maybe the world. We'll find out. Phil, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, glad to have you. Delighted to have you. Phil, where are you calling in from this morning? I am out in uh, New York City uh, for the week. Oh, that's that, um, that. It's an easier call um, at 8.30 <laughs> Eastern if you're on the – East Coast and the West Coast. I was worried that you were calling in from Silicon Valley. What brings you to New York this week? Yeah, so a lot of the work we do uh, in sports, um, most of the leagues professionally are based out here. So I'm, I'm meeting with uh, the leagues around some of the data we've collected and the trends. And, and I think every league um, shares the same desire and that's, um, to really kind of promote uh, safety amongst their athletes, um, particularly as, as people become more aware of these injuries uh, that are occurring. Particularly, I think a lot of the leagues that we're meeting with uh, concern is around the loss of, of grassroots participation in sports at the youth level. So this is interesting to me because I, I, I knew that the leagues have this interest generally, but I wouldn't have known that they would be working with technology companies um, to, to further it. I think of that as being a team-based thing as opposed to a league-based thing. So if the Tell us, give us an example of something a league might do if they were if they were wanted to be a big advocate of your technology. Yeah, so the NFL, for example, um, we will use uh, in the last two NFL combines um, as an assessment for um, both you know injury prevention as well as a risk standpoint because um, a lot of times athletes are exceptional at compensating uh, for certain injuries and and, and weaknesses. So. How can we get a more objective look into uh, what their risks are and, and subsequently how we can uh, lower that risk? And, and the NFL is a, a, a nice place to start because the common is such more of a, a discrete activity for talent identification uh, compared to the other leagues. 
So, Phil, we want to hear more about how teams are using this and, and, and more about what you think the potential is. But help us understand what it is. We've had you on before. We've talked with yeah. people who use your technology, so we understand. But can you remind our listeners, what is the technology that, that you've developed? Yeah, so a lot of um, most of the injuries that occur in, in athletes or, or any of us, um, at least here on Earth, where gravity um, you know, rules all is, is some sort of interaction with the ground. You know, and, and how we interact with the ground is really producing what's called ground reaction force. So if you push down, that's what causes you to go up. And so we use a force plate to measure how that ground reaction force is occurring in an individual, how quickly it happens, how long. And so that type of pattern, um, what we call a signature, uh, that signature we've been able to classify by gathering a lot of data okay, these individuals that are successful at this activity look like that, but we've got to be careful because hamstrings look like this. So really starting to build this database um, from both the performance as well as the health standpoint um, for each individual athlete. So a, a naive question I kind of have about uh, this force place technology is I kind of think, I mean, I'm going to kind of believe that you know, across all the population of people, there's a lot of variation in how much force you can exert and, and, and uh, on, on these plates. Among top athletes, I guess it kind of surprises me that there's still that tremendous amount of variation, or, or at least that there's variation that you wouldn't be able to just sort of predict based on height and weight and kind of some of these more rudimentary measures. So can you talk a little bit about how much athletes vary in this? Yeah, and it, it's a good question because it's really, you know, different by sport. Uh, you can look at, you know, the sport of soccer or baseball where there's quite a bit more variation um, just to the naked eye. When we talk about soccer, we're talking about Messi and Ronaldo, you know, who couldn't have more different body types. Um, in, in baseball, you've got skinny, fat, short, tall, um, just being more of a skill sport. It really depends how much – uh, this, the skill plays a role in the sport itself. We get towards track and field, for example, um, where it's much more physical than, than skill-based. We start to see a lot less variation amongst the athletes. So, Phil, this is Eric Bradley. I wanted to follow up with that. Um, is this one of those things? I've, it's a two-part question, but it's really one question. Um, is this one of those things where more is necessarily better? And number two, um, is it linear, meaning if there's a 10% increase, let's say, in someone's plate force that they can give, I assume for many things you have, there's diminishing marginal returns. So both, let me ask both those questions. Is more necessarily better? And are there, do you tend to see diminishing marginal returns as you're trying to predict various outcomes? Uh, that's a great question, Eric. Yeah. Um, more force is definitely not better. Um, you know, one of the strongest predictors of Hansen risk is an increased amount of force. Yep. And, you know, if you drive your car faster, um, you know, bad things can happen. Um, you know, Justin Verlander, um, w one of the great pitchers, he said, you know, I, I figured out how to stop blowing out my elbow when I realized I didn't need to throw 98 every pitch. That 94, 95 was just fine. And so, you know, these forces can definitely be too much. You know, there was a great, you know, article about how the Sacramento Kings haven't had an ACL risk in 18 years and a lot of promotion around that kind of health. 
But we also got to think about how many playoff appearances the Sacramento Kings have had in the last 18 years, right? right. So we have to, we have to, you know, it's, it, but this is the real opportunity for technology because how, how close can we fly to the sun without getting burned? You know, what are the margins of performance and injury and how do we avoid not crossing those? And the second part of that question kind of relates to that is, unfortunately, it's not a linear uh, risk response. It's exponential. Ah. And so as that force gets further away from the middle of the bell curve, that injury risk really starts to elevate at a much greater slope. Interesting. This is Wharton Moneyball. You're going to be here for the next hour and a half or so, as we are every Wednesday morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric and Shane. Phil, we're talking to Phil Wagner, CEO and founder of Sparta Science. Phil, you've got a few variables that you measure. So it's it, it, and to the layperson, it would be surprising that just observing a person jump on a plate, jump from a plate, you to be able to extract multiple measures. Now, one of these is just the height that they jump. So I, I, we get that. But you're getting three distinct measures from the way that they jump off of this force plate. You're getting explode, drive, and load. Can you tell us what those three things are and, and how and what predictive, different predictive value they provide? Yeah, and I think, you know, the 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 assessment takes about 60 seconds and the way we can glean all that information is really highlight the growth of how we're using data. A fourth plate's been around for decades, but when we talk about injury prediction or performance, you know, the, the software really takes into account, you know, force profiles, but also ethnicity, age, injury history. And it's that kind of um, larger picture that allows, um, those conclusions to be made around the data. And so, you know, the three variables that we found to be the most telling are how that force production is initiated, what we call your eccentric rate of force. So that's like a loading part of any movement. Um, when that's, we see that highest in, in individuals, basically that squat for a living. So you're going to get a catcher or a lineman. Whereas the second variable we look at is how quickly you can change direction in that jump. And, and that's really, you see it high in your quicker athletes, basketball and soccer. And then your last variable we call drive because that's how long you prolong your force production. And we see that high in rotational athletes. You know, basically it's one of the reasons why pitchers have such problems with comebackers. These rotational athletes a lot of times don't have to react. They control the timing. Mm. And so what, how long they prolong that force production is a key piece. What are other who, who are other rotational athletes? Are golfers rotational athletes? Golfers, it's really any athlete that relies on timing. You know, in football, for example, besides quarterbacks, long snappers. Very rotational. And the idea that they have to they're less reactive and really trying to prolong and and allow that movement to be much more smooth. So, Phil, uh, this is Eric Bradlow again. Are there? Um, are, do you see a day where the technology, like right now, you have a physical technology? I assume it's a physical plate, right? Someone jumps on something, does something. Do you see a, a, an era where someone's just got sensors over him or her, and all of this just gets measured continuously in real time using some sort of technology, or do you do you think the you know jumping on the plate will be, or something like that, will be the long term technology? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's certainly um, heading that way. I think the big 
challenge we have right now with sensors is reliability. Um, we're still in that kind of place, I think, as a field in sports science of um, confusing data with good data, and they're not the same thing. And so as we're collecting data from sensors, what a lot of teams are finding is that it's relatively unreliable. And so, you know, how can we better filter the information coming in, particularly if it's, it's live like you're talking about, um, you know, because that more data is really can be a distraction for a lot of the teams, a lot of the athletes um, in terms of what, what to do next. Um, I think certainly the goal of technology, and, and particularly when we're talking about hardware, is to reduce, you know, the footprint of it. And so, yeah, I believe that force plates will continue to evolve into uh, more sensor-based and eventually potentially video-based. Phil, that, that Mara's work in various places, I was having conversations with some doctors at the Mayo Clinic recently, and they're talking about moving away from, this is longer-term thinking, but they're trying to come up with ways of moving away from all the um, you know, the in, the physical interventions that keep track of what's going on in the bodies to something outside, like imaging. How much can you pick up? And it's shocking the amount of physiological measures that they can pick up from imaging. So what you're talking about and what Eric is asking about is something that we know is going on in the medical world. Can you tell us, can you give us some sense of of the scope of your uh, your client work. So we know that you're you're in here with the University of Pennsylvania. We've talked to some of the guys down there, some of the coaches and some of the PT folks. How how broad is your client base at this at this and geographically, but also across sports and across levels of sport? Right. Yeah. So we've uh, been fortunate to be um, working all over the world at this point um, with English soccer, Australia rugby, um, South Africa, and and, and India cricket uh, most recently, which has been a very interesting one, another rotational uh, you know, type of force profile that we were talking about. And, and then from a college setting and a high school setting, from the small, more academic institutions like the University of Pennsylvania to you know, the universities that have their own TV station, you know, like the University of Texas. You know, so a pretty, pretty wide range of um, you know, levels of play with these universities. And it's, and it's nice because they culturally each, you know, have a very different uh, approach to what they're doing, whether that's looking to try to save money uh, through student-athlete health or looking to try to um, generate more revenue through performance. So can you walk us through how one of these institutions uses your work. So t- take, not so randomly, the University of Texas. How does a school like that make use of your technology? What do they want out of your technology? Who are they putting through that? Yeah, so some of the larger schools will really use it for recruiting um, because, you know, coming on campus for these visits, at the end of the day, the assessments we use are a medical test. And so students coming on campus may have unknown or undisclosed injuries, so it's an opportunity to evaluate what the student-athlete's health is like and what they can do to reduce some of their risks. So can you can, can we dig into that one real quick? So so say you have a prospect come onto campus and yeah. you you want to assess him in some way, and so you have him use your technology. You can make these assessments pretty quickly, and then presumably you're going to drop that into some kind of norm, so you get some sense of how that athlete compares to other athletes you've seen like him. Is that is that right? So and then and then That's certain bells right. and whistles are going to go off if they come out unusual <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, minus the bells and whistles, but yes, uh, we don't want everybody in the room to know, um, <laughs> you know, that the individual that just did the test is, is you know, going to break down. But 
yet the norms are a key piece to that. Um, rather than having to wait and gather, you know, one individual's longitudinal, you know, pattern, you know, really leveraging um, the data sets of similar positions, uh, genders, ages, and that's what helps create some of the identification uh, on that first visit, at least. So, Phil, this is Eric Bradlow again. Just to be clear, you would also consider yourself, given Cade's question, a data company. It's not just about having the measuring device, but you've built up a data bank where you can, as you just said, norm people by sport, by position, etc. And that's a key part of your value, which is why, if you know, I'm making it up, if the Bradlow company wanted to create force place technology, maybe I could do it. Um, but I don't have this long database, which is a big part of your business intelligence value. Yeah, and we, we you're absolutely right. We are 100% a data company. Um, I think a lot of people cling to hardware because it's concrete, right, and they can picture it and understand it a little bit better. Um, but we refer to it as a dumb device, you know, because it's just a, a piece of hardware that's creating information. Um, but it's really how that information is filtered, processed, and classified in a way that makes it good data and, more importantly, insightful data of, how it can support or change uh, the decisions made by an organization. We're talking to Phil Wagner. Phil is the CEO and founder of Sparta Science. This is a Silicon Valley company that uses force plate technology to assess athletes. They've got clients we've known for a long time. They have clients here, for example, the University of Pennsylvania, but they're working with professional teams and leagues and schools around the country. Phil, you can use this technology to both understand potential but also injury or and so for example you have this prospect that we were just talking about come through and use the force plate how do you know whether he's just weak or doesn't have great potential or is actually injured or has historically had something wrong with him how do you assess the difference between those things yeah the, the great question the reality is we don't care um you know because whether they're coming off an injury or about to have one potentially due to weakness you know the treatment is the same and I think one of the challenges in sports science is, you know, compared to something like really hardcore academia is we're less, we're less concerned, at least initially, with the understanding of why and more importantly focused on, okay, what do we do? You know, and there's a very thin line between being injured and, you know, being healthy. And you could be one step or one day away from having that next injury and so whether somebody's weak or currently injured, if they have the same profile, the treatment is the same. So, um, so, so we're really trying to address the weakness. Yeah, so Phil, this is Eric again. This is like, yeah. for, first of all, thank you. It's like a softball because this is you've led me into the question I was going to ask anyway, which is one way to think about your force plate measure is it's an X in a regression model or a, or an injury model. But I wanted to follow up to your question, which is let's imagine someone has a low X. What can the person do? What's the treatment to increase yeah. their X? So you must be Eric, in that Eric, business yeah, as well. You have to elaborate what you mean by X. Well, what I mean is imagine a regression <laughs> model where the Y is some outcome you're interested in. There's someone's like injury or not. Injury or not. The X is their force plate measure that uh, you guys measure. And then the question is, can you, you know, this is what we do in a business school, advertising affects sales. Great. But if I can't manipulate advertising, that's nice to know, but <laughs> right. I can't use it. So how do you guys think about if someone has a certain value of X, how you, what kind of strengthening programs or what are the treatments that one can do to improve and, X? And, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but can you speak to 
does an increase if you can change x does that demonstrably change you know the probability of injury the y variable as well right right yeah i think um you know our first major league baseball client um, one of the uh trainers had asked you know well we really need to be looking at arm length and leg length um so talking to your initial question of you know can we really affect that change far as I know, um, with adult, you know, aged males, changing arm length and leg length is probably not going to happen. And so focusing on, you know, those segment lengths, right, is really just a distraction, Mm -hmm. right? And so how do we focus on the variables that are going to really cause change? And I think that the field that needs to be integrated the most into uh, sports science is pharmacokinetics. You know, how do the drugs affect each individual in a different way? Mm. Because really, if you look at exercise like a drug, what we've seen is a very different dose-response curve Right. for every individual, you know, based on age, ethnicity, injury history, sport, right? All these different variables in the same way that pharmacy looks at drug response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we we talk to people using sports science technology around the world, and this is one of the themes that has emerged, is the importance of considering the heterogeneity in the population and tailoring programs mm-hmm. to that heterogeneity. Phil, we're down to just about a minute with you. Can you tell us what the frontier is for you right now? What is hard? What are you pushing on? Where are you going to see advances in your work over the next, whatever, couple of years? Yeah, I think what we're really pushing on is this area we've, we've just started addressing, which is the um, dose response. You know, I think we've really ensured that the diagnostic is reliable. And, and really, like an MRI, you know, the diagnostic capabilities are um, somewhat limited um, as opposed to how do we affect uh, outcome. And that's an endless pursuit. Right. Um, because we want to continue to get more specific. You know, the Colorado Rockies, for example, can address Dominican pitchers' risk very differently than Caucasians. Right. And so how do we separate the decision tree into smaller and smaller branches to be more accurate and more effective? Got it. Very interesting. Phil, listen, very much appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning, um, and good luck with the work that you're doing. We're always interested to hear about it. Thanks for having me on, guys. You bet. That was Phil Wagner, CEO and founder of Sparta Science. Sparta Science is using force plate technology to assess athletic performance and develop those athletes. That has been two quarters, the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. <laughs> Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, statistics professor, and Eric Bradlow, marketing professor, maybe also statistics professor. Do you get credit for that? I think I get credit oh, for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give him credit for that. All right. Uh, Adi Weiner's in the classroom right now. Adi We'll be back. You guys can jump in and join us. Please do one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. One eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. I'm a little worried since we changed channels that we're not getting as many calls. Is that possible? Somebody prove us wrong. Give Maddie Dats a call. One eight four four Wharton. Email businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Businessradio at siriusxm dot com or on Twitter. 
at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our account. Give us a holler up there. Just off the phone with Phil Wagner. Phil runs Sparta Sports and uh, interesting interview in the sports science world. Now changing gears to one of our all-time favorite guests and a regular on this program, Brian Burke. Brian is with ESPN now. He was in a former life a Navy pilot and then an early pioneer in modern football analytics. Now he's with the mothership in a small group of people changing the world of sports analytics up there. Brian, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Glad to have you, man. Are you calling from Northern Virginia? Am I guessing right? Yes. All right. So even though you're with the mothership, you're 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 working out of your home still. Is that correct? Yes. I'm, yeah. The rest in office of ESPN. <laughs> All right. How often do you make it up to West Hartford or whatever it is up there, Bristol? I uh, usually go up there for a week at a time, a uh, handful of times a year. It, it depends. It changes um, maybe right. four or five times a year. Brian, what happens when you go up there for a week? When, when you, are you still kind of tickled by walking around the ESPN campus, or is, is that worn off yet? Not worn off yet, yeah. Um, it, it is weird. Uh, it's, um, you see all, the, the, all the, the sports center talent and the celebrities everybody knows, and we all have our favorites, and they feel like our buddies, and you want to go say <laughs> hi to them. And uh, Actually, my first visit was so surreal. So they, had me, they were rec- recruiting me, and they had me up to lunch, and I'm uh, in the cafe in line to get like a, a wrap. And right in front of me are John Gruden and Stephen A. Smith. We don't really know each other, but know of each other. And, you know, Gruden doesn't live in Bristol. He, he, he you know, lived elsewhere, would travel for Monday Night Football. And they were just in this just, like, loud conversation. That was just such a surreal moment. And those moments continue every time I go there. Did, did they lose some credibility on the analytics front when the first two people you saw were Stephen Smith and John Gruden? You're like, hey, where are the analysts around here? I mean, those guys, come on. Really? Yeah, actually, um, no, uh, I have uh, Stephen A. Smith and, and Kellerman. Kellerman dug into an old article about quarterback fall-offs, and they bring this up at, at least once a week now on first take. Oh, he's and been predicting Kellerman, Brady's fall-off uh, for, uh, for a good five years now. He'll eventually be right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so his argument is Tom Brady's going to fall off a cliff this year because this article I read online from this guy, Brian Burke, didn't even know I worked for ESPN mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, at the time. So he's reading this old article that just said, hey, these aging quarterbacks, these aging franchise quarterbacks, they, you don't see it coming. There's no steady decline. They just fall off this cliff their last year. You just don't know what year it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, But he kind of <laughs> – I think he got mis- you know misunderstood a little bit and so he's been digging this hole and Stephen a just started ripping him apart say where did you read this who and he's like who brian who how do you spell that b-r-i and i'm at home working and somebody's like hey you got to turn on first take right now and so yes very surreal um and it and never goes away so it that that little piece you reminded reminded me of is we saw something in the last few months about someone who's saying injury risk is not properly modeled because it's not that like running backs, you know, decline steadily over time. It's that they cruise along and then they get hurt and they're gone. So it's a, it's a survival curve you should be working with as opposed to some kind of steady decay. That wasn't your work, was it? That was- no, I did something, you know, there was this thing about 370 carries. I won't mention 
whose theory that was, but it was oh, gosh. kind of this combination of several statistical fallacies. And <clears throat> so, but, but it caught traction. This, this, uh, they called it curse of 370 or something. If you give your running back more than 370 carries in a regular season, he's going to fall. He's going to have a terrible year the next year or a terrible year, either the next year or the year after that. And it was all kind of well, this silly is... nonsense, but it caught on and it took years and years to kind of, uh, wean that out of the league. You know that this is one of the reasons we love that you're up there at ESPN because you're you're a great analyst and now you have a better platform. And so we hope that you you know what used to take years and years might take less time. And it seems to me that ESPN is actually kind of a force for good these days. Now that they have enough of you guys up there, they're using good, sophisticated analytics across the platform. They're showing up and you know Game Day is using interesting stuff. FPI is everywhere. I mean, if people could just pay more attention to FBI. That would that would be a win, right? But here's here's an area that I think they still has some ways to go. The win probabilities. I'm so entertained by the way how how strongly people react to the win probability, the in game win probability. So you're yeah. kind of on the on the on the front lines of this. What's been your experience with those charts and people's reactions to them? Uh, well, the 99 percent of the cases everybody is like yeah that's exactly how i felt that was that's a chart of my emotions during the game that perfectly captures what i was feeling that that whole game mm-hmm. and they 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 buy into it and they get it what people um i think the the pushback on it is sometimes uh one is what's the point uh and the reason it, it is kind of this it's a novelty, right? If you just look at the chart and go, oh, they had a 3% chance to win here and they had a 5% chance to win there. But on the analytics side, if you, that's the core model for in-game decision analysis. Mm-hmm. So that's what that model's for. So that's driving the, should I go for it on fourth down? Should I go for two here? When do I need the onside kick? Say, so Brian, uh, let me pause because you said that's the cooler model. Can you use a different adjective than that? It's core. Sorry, oh, core. Core. Okay. Yeah, that's my Baltimore accent coming. It's a be- coming it's a better model, basically, because because this is yeah. what you if you care about wins, then you need to work with win probability as as the objective of yeah. your decisions, right? Yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. I remember uh, listening to Dan Patrick one day, who says he was complaining about. I think he was complaining about QBR and passer rating, and he goes, none of this is really connected to wins. I want to see something that like starts with the win and works backwards and tells me mm. how a quarterback helps a team win. And yeah. I'm kind of screaming back at the radio saying, yeah, we got that. We have something exactly like that. That's called win probability added. So mm-hmm. there, there's some really good uses of that. On the, on the ESPN side, what, the, the problem can be they, the, they want the uh, – like on Sports Center, they want to highlight the most extreme things, and naturally, right? And so they want to look at the case where uh, a team had just this incredibly improbable comeback. And so people will argue whether it was like a one in thousand comeback or one in hundred comeback or one in five thousand comeback. And you know the models really aren't built, and we don't have the data. It's really they can't be that precise. You know, I, I just want to say, hey, it was greater than ninety nine percent or right. less than one percent. But right. we really want those those kind of huge numbers with lots of zeros and and because they're extreme and eye catching and stuff. So that's when we can get into a little bit. You know, we get some pushback on on that sort of thing. Am I wrong or is some? I felt like some of the sentiment was, you know, oh, 
it's a little bit of outcome bias. It can't have been that extreme because, look, they didn't win after all. You know, there's 99 percent. And then, oh, they lost. Well, your chart must have been stupid. And there's a there's a sense that maybe because they see those events happen, you know, every other month, someone's putting up a chart where it was 99 percent at the end of the game and they lost. People are like, it can't happen enough. And they don't realize there are literally thousands of matches going on all over the world. It can exactly happen. Yeah. But they can't get past that outcome bias reasoning. Right, they don't know the denominator. The denominator is enormous, mm-hmm. and you're only shown highlights from the the most spectacular games and and uh, you know, the most notable games. There are, um, you know, literally thousands of of college football games and things going on every year that uh, don't make it on your radar just because they're they're just not notable. Right. You know, that's a general theme that we don't we don't we we often don't understand the denominator, and it leads us. It leads us to get probabilities wrong. So, for example... Well, we're... let me give an example. Uh, so, Brian, this is Eric Bradlow. Uh, Kate asked us a question last week on the air, which is, if I told you who the top 10 teams were, what the, what's the probability of four of them making the college football playoff? This is exactly the example Did, I was going to give. All right. So, this is so, so we're in sync here. And it turns out you can do 10 choose four, which turns out there's 210 combinations. And so, if you just believed every one of those top 10 teams had an equal chance, you should guess one in 210. But when Kate asked us, we all said, oh, 10%, 15%. And we were off by a magnitude of 100. It wasn't even close. So, we just yeah. had no sense that there's actually 200 plus combinations of four teams out of that 10. And that's only the top 10. You know, that's there's only teams the... outside the top 10 and the top 20, top 25 that have a chance. I mean, the number of combinations when you're considering the the probability of a p- specific bracket in the in, in the four-team in, in NCAA playoff, it's just enormous. And people have no sense. And that kills the likelihood of any particular thing. So we're talking to Brian Burke. Brian is uh, analytics senior analytics specialist at ESPN, a longtime football analytics writer. Brian, you just referred to win probability added. So other sports, you know, baseball was the first to have these numbers. And, you know, you go into a, a major league scouting room or you watch a draft, and these guys have all their players distilled down to a number, like a single number, and it drives everything. Basketball can do this now. Basketball has caught up, maybe even surpassed baseball. Football has struggled to be able to reduce it that way that far and it and it inhibits the ability to to make some decisions it inhibits analytics in general but it sounds like you've made some progress and there are some other folks kicking some numbers around your is your preferred win probability added and and does it apply can you can you use that to evaluate an offensive guard do you have it at that level no um like things like expected points added win probability added those are really team level metrics okay um and they but when a quarterback makes a pass, you know you can credit him for that, you know team level um, improvement or decline in chance to win or chance to score. Uh, when a running back is handed the ball, right? You, we we do that anyway with yards, right? We credit the quarterback with all those yards. Well, we can go, but, but, we go further. I just saw a stat on Earl Thomas. I've never seen plus minus on defensive backs in the in the in college, but someone ran a plus minus on Earl Thomas. And it was striking. It might have been a small sample, but it was striking the difference on what what their defense does, Seattle's defense does, when he's on the field or not. And it, it yeah. just struck me as interesting. For you know, if you can get a big enough sample, you might be able to run. And if you get enough variation, there may not be in hockey. These guys are on off the ice every minute. In football, there, there's not as much variation, so it's harder to pull out those differences. But wh- wh- yeah. how can we go from these team-level numbers to an individual? Yeah, because I think partially out credit for plays is very important. I mean, you, you, you say you can give credit for the yards of a pass to the quarterback, but, I mean, 
you know, Aaron Rodgers throws a 30-yard pass to Randall Cobb, and Randall Cobb runs another 41 yards to the end zone. How is, is that the right way of parceling it out? QBR does that um, for, for quarterbacks anyway. We Hey, there's a 10-yard pass and then a 40-yard yard after catch for a 50-yard touchdown. We don't credit the quarterback for you know, all, whatever, 60 of those yards or, or the touchdown, we give them the, you know, the 10 yards plus some expected um, okay. uh, amount of yards based on the configuration of the t- and type of play and game situation, and then turn that into expected points added, then credit that expected points added to the quarterback. So we do that a little bit with the quarterback, but here's the real answer to what you're, you're asking, is with the player tracking data we have now in the NFL, we can... Uh, look at, let's say, that left guard and say he won his block or he lost his block and allowed pressure. At a, Not only did he allow pressure, but we know exactly how far into the play, how many seconds after the snap pressure was allowed, and we know what kind of pressure it was. Was it edge pressure? Was it pocket pressure? And then um, we can look at those plays, take a step back and say, uh, and do some uh, math with the team-level metrics and say whenever – a left guard wins a block like this, they tend to improve the, the, the distribution of expected points added looks like this mm-hmm. compared to when he loses a block. Um, the distribution of expected points added looks something like something else. Take the difference between those those expectations, and then we can credit that player with that amount of Yeah, so Brian, this is Eric Brad, though. I've been doing those... Look, I remember the as a graduate student in statistics, um, there was a guy that came in who was doing sports statistics at BYU. His name is Gil Fellingham, and the way he described it is, if you want to do individual-level statistics, it's actually quite simple. You've got to score every person on every play. And he was obviously, the way he would do it is he would have a team of people in the old days just literally focusing on a given player and giving them a score. And then you're now talking about using technology, even if it's just a course measure. Did the person win or lose their particular block or something like that? So I I love this analysis of kind of looking at given win versus loss on a given play, what's the change in expected win share? And that should help not only evaluate the player, but I would imagine maybe you could talk about this. Wouldn't this help a general manager also decide on which, call it players, or which positions have high leverage on a team? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if you could do a, a big giant plus minus, uh, um, you know, if, if if we did have <clears throat> substitutions in football like we do in other sports, um, we could do a plus minus. We but we we can't. There's not enough substitutions. Um, but if you could, yeah, then then um, this is kind of the next best thing. Uh, could be even better, I think. And you, yeah, if you have a, a giant matrix of every player and every play. Um, then you can kind of solve that matrix, and you get you can say, hey, this player's worth this much. Uh, this this other player is worth you know another value. Um, he can be worth he's worth this when he's playing the three technique tackle. He's he's worth this when he's a five technique defensive end. Um, we can do we could do lots of great stuff. So clearly, that's where the field is going. And one of the things that you're saying is going to help get there is the technology, the player tracking. One of my questions about the description you just gave is how how readily can we go from an image to code that allows you to evaluate the value of these things? So you say, well, we're gonna we're gonna assess whether that guy held his block and for how long and what impacted it on the play. 
How far along are we on making that translation automatically? Um, yeah, that's what I'm working on now, and uh, we're very far along, um, very, very far along. There's some things I can't discuss. The league is keeps very tight control on kind of the, the avenues um, where we can just kind of talk about these things and channels that we can talk about them on. But uh, but we are very, very far along. We are much further along than I think people um, could expect. Brian, can we safely outlets, say so. without giving anything away that it's not a human-based system oh, with no. just people watching? So there's some, whether it's an artificial intelligence partner or yeah. something, it, it's something in that realm. Is it fair to say that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It, it's, it's AI. It's, it's neural networks. It's watching these plays, and it's making... Um, Real-time and anal- near real-time analysis of of each play and each player, um, and so, uh, but we're we're just we've got it, we've done it, and it works, and what? we're kind of just waiting for, um, waiting for the the appropriate time and and venue to to start unveiling these things. So, um, Brian, what's what's your relationship to the league on this? I I wouldn't have known that you guys were in partnership with them necessarily. So, so what can you can you talk about that? You know, I might get in trouble talking about contract stuff, um, but the the they're they're a vendor basically, a data vendor. Um, so the league the league uh, they have a company called Zebra, which actually does the um, uh, the 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 hardware uh, system that collects the player tracking data. Then the league um, owns that, and then it it sells it, vends it to it gives it to its teams to the 32 clubs, but yeah. then, uh, then it sells it to people like Fox and ESPN and CBS. Mm-hmm. 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 So I, I, maybe we'll just let this go for now, but there, I don't, we don't quite yet understand what, you know, I know that the league, I mean, Michael Lopez is working for the league now. So stats prof that we've does a lot of great work. And so they're, they're clearly interesting, interesting things boiling on the, on the league's kitchen and around this technology. Be very curious to see, how this thing comes up. I have one detail question for you that I'm curious about. And th- this is one of those nitpicky things that, that sometimes people who, who don't like these grades and don't like these systems, critics will say, but it seems legitimate to me. So how do you, you want, you, you, the best linemen will be given harder assignments essentially. So yeah. they, they, you know, they won't, they'll be asked to make a reach block or they won't get help on something. And so their performance has to be normed for the positions they're put into in some way because those positions aren't random. They're endogenous. They reflect something about the ability. So I think I have some ideas on how you might accommodate that. But to what extent are people accommodating that? Because it seems really important for maybe all positions. Yeah, um, we can we, – we can, like you were talking about before, uh, with running back injuries – it, the, it's a survival fun, like a block is the way I <clears throat> I think of a block. The way we're starting to think of a block at ESPN is a is a survival mechanism, just like your battery in your iPhone, right? Like, um, you, if the pass, there's a big problem with time and pocket statistics, um, in that they say uh, Ben Roethlisberger averages 2.7 seconds time and pocket. And but as soon as he throws the ball, he can um, that time and pocket clock stops, right? But you don't know how long he would have had in the pocket had he not thrown that ball so quickly. Yeah. So it's 
uh, just like your, your iPhone battery. You don't know when that iPhone battery would have died because you just went out and bought the new iPhone today, right? So, or in testing, right? They don't test until every single iPhone dies. That would take years and years and years. So it's a survival model. So the, the so statistician would consider these ways there's... to model that. And so as, as a block comes in, we're, we're measuring how long does that kind of block system survive. And... Um, and then we, we do that on both sides of the equation, the, the blocker and then the pass rusher. And then for now, we're just looking at past stuff. And then what we'll do is we'll say, um, who, who we, then we give a grade, an unadjusted grade, um, using survival functions uh, for each blocker and for each pass rusher. Then we look at who were you blocking. And then we can drop that into the kind of into a matrix um, and solve for that, just like any kind of uh, SRS type thing or, you know, team power ranking, you adjust for the opponent, right? So, it, so it's, I think it's not I, hard to do mathematically. Um, so I, that's kind of, uh, it's, it's not a hard problem to solve. Well, Brian, that part of it, I get that the conditioning for the situation I get, I'm, I'm go, I want to go another step and say, I want to give someone a credit for being put in tough situations because there's some, there are, if you're a, a lineman who could handle his assignment without help or, or it allows you to, execute a play that maybe another guy couldn't do it's more than just controlling for the difficulty of the task it's also crediting him for being the situation yeah um but then it depends on whether or not he executes that sure that whether he he actually succeeds in that situation sure 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 i mean I think what Cade might be getting at, or maybe I can paraphrase, is, you know, in baseball, like with something like a win probability added type measure, one of the parts that win probability added, it, it, it credits a pitcher, for example, for success, but it gives kind of extra credit if that success comes in like high leverage situations or, or some kind of, there's some kind of context to that success that you want to provide extra reward for. And and I, I kind of feel like what? what you're getting at is really sort of like, I want to give extra credit when there is success in difficult assignments. It's, it's, I, no? I, no, I, yeah, Eric has it. It's yeah. So, so I'll give you. So, Brian, tell me if this analogy works I, for I you. I agree with everything you said, no, no. Shay, but that's not capturing yet. Yeah. I, so let me give you an analogy. So um, when I worked, ten second story, Brian. I used to work as a statistician at the educational testing service, and we've all taken these types of tests. And you, you know, there are a lot of things where it says pick one of the following five essays. And you look at the performance of someone on the essay, and you give them a score. Mm-hmm. But actually, what's more informative is which one they pick. Oh, I love it. That's great. And so <laughs> we actually ran an analysis where we tried to predict someone's performance in college. We threw away their scores. Oh my gosh, we just kept cool. which one they picked. And it turns out smarter people pick better. And conditional on that, they also perform better on the ones they pick. But actually, it's more informative about which ones they pick. So now back to Cade's point. Just the fact that you would put a great left tackle into a situation, forget how he performed on the play, that in itself is informative. So you have two things if you want to get someone's ability measure that you need to incorporate. One is the selection of being in that situation, and the second is the performance on it. I could So thank you, Eric. Helpful. And just give examples in other places in the field. You put your best defensive back in isolation on an island against the best receiver on the other side. That's you need to norm, you know, the difficulty of that assignment in order to assess. But you also need to give him credit because it helps the rest of the defense because it frees him up to do other things. You got quarterbacks who don't have the arm to throw the long out, and so they spend the entire game throwing the short the short stuff. And 
the fact that that other thing is missing should actually reflect poorly on them because it's not randomly, it's not random that it's missing. One of the things we can do is, uh, what we do do is we look at double teams. So if you are on that island as a blocker, um, then we, we know that. We know how long you were double teamed, you, you know, you were double teamed with somebody, who, that, who else was uh, helping you on that block. One thing is, though, uh, I think like, the degree of difficulty uh, of, of some of these things is like, hey, like the, hey there's this long like, reach block, or you have to step outside a guy and then get outside leverage and seal you know, an outside running lane or something. Those, those things are very, very difficult for blockers to do. We're not there yet where we're like, oh, it's this kind of block and it's that hard. Mm -hmm. uh, what we can do is say, hey, you're matched up against somebody else uh, who is this good um, on average, and this is how well you did against against him, mm -hmm. and then we mm -hmm. kind of solve, solve for the uh, equilibrium. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it's an interesting problem. It's a challenging problem, that, and this is one of the fun things about analytics. Just when you think we kind of get it down, we get all these new data, and they require entirely new techniques, and you know how it is, Brian. I mean, we, we, we add a lot of value, and then, you know, we realize we're still getting a zillion things wrong. And um, yeah, yeah, it's going to yeah. be a while. It's going to be a while. What, what, what else is going on around there? What else are you work, working on that you're excited about that you can talk about? Well, things opened up uh, recently with some legal rulings or legal ruling about um, uh, wagering and gambling. And so uh, we've, we've been asked to um, see what we can do in, in that realm. Um, we, we're going to stay out of things like uh, um, touting uh, lines and picks and things like that. But uh, uh, there are some fun things we can do. So you mentioned the, the in-game win probability model earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, one project uh, we have um, going right now is uh, in-game uh, spread cover probability so that um, those, those, those of you out there who enjoy uh, wagering on games can – who don't care so much about who wins but care whether or not a team covers a spread – uh, we'll have a, a chart to follow during the game to mm -hmm. to match your emotions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What that reminds me of the the sentiment analysis stuff that you guys are doing as well is that where where is that and how enthusiastic are you about what what we can learn from that? Is that just a fun thing or can we learn something from that? It, it is mostly a fun thing. It's something I did uh, just. Um, I have. I always have like a side project to just kind of keep me interested and, and keep it fun. Mm -hmm. It was one of those. Yeah, because the rest of your work sounds like a real drag, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I have a rough. <laughs> I have a rough, rough life. I've uh, I've had a lot of dream jobs in my life, and mm -hmm. this is this is definitely one of them. Uh, but the twi the Twitter analysis. So we download thousands and thousands of thousands of tweets, including probably many of your listeners right now are probably caught up in in our data, and. Um, we scan them for sentiment, and is it a positive or is it negative, and, and to what degree is it positive and negative? And then we can say, hey, are you referring to a team? And then we say <clears throat> these fans of these certain teams uh, are either happy or sad, and we can measure the, the sentiment uh, kind of from week to week to week uh, of these fans. And it, it's kind of interesting and fun to do that have you, on its own. Have we learned anything um, about, about particular – Like last week, Raiders fans were, were not very happy um, – but it is part of a thing we do called the Fan Happiness Index. It's one of the one of the contributors, um, and uh, well, uh, have, you, have you taken that? that? It, it really, it is just uh, kind of a, a side project. Brian, are there are there things we can learn about that? So, 
are there situations that beyond the obvious that drive sentiment up or down? Are there fan- yeah, like surprising sentiments? I mean, you know, fans that somehow like come out of a game where the team lost, but they're yeah, not like, as upset as you would expect them to be, appar- or, or the reverse of that. Apparently, Texas A and M these fans they chanted Jimbo Fisher's name as he left the field. After yeah. a loss, and a heartbreaking loss at that. That's how happy those fans were. Or there. maybe Cleveland was happy with their first non-loss in 14 consecutive games home- to Pittsburgh. No, uh, first games of the season. They ah, tied. Ah, okay. Best yeah, results yeah, since 2004. About, one of the things I've, I learned about happiness is it's not what you think it is. It's like you think you think this set of fans or they should be happy, and guess what? They happiness has a mind of its own, and it's really really hard to pin down. Uh, and it's all about kind of uh, uh, ex- expectations, and mm-hmm. it's 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 a, it's a measurement against expectations. So you could be a Patriots fan, and you could go ten and six this year, right? And you would be very disappointed if you're a uh, Browns fan and you go ten and six this year. You're mm-hmm. um, uh, you'd be very thrilled. So you, there's this kind of I don't know with the researchers hedonic adjustment and yeah. kind of hedonic norms. You just um, and it. I think all humans are like this. You would, you would, you win the lottery, and within a month, you've adjusted to your new environment, and your new situation, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you're not, you're not as thrilled as you thought you would be. Same thing when you suffer a loss in life. I'm getting a little deep here, but you, you I think people surprise themselves with how quickly they adjust to to their new to their right. new situation. I right. think that's what I've learned watching. I look at this every week, and I look. Uh, from week to week to week, how things go up and down for the different teams, um, and it, it, it's it's interesting to me just as a just as a curious. Person. So, Brian, how happy am I going to be after the Buccaneers beat the Eagles this week? Should I be happy about that? Is that going to? Yeah, you would be. Actually, the Buccaneers are a problem for us. They're un- Buccaneers fans are there are very few of them, by the way, and there are. Uh, <laughs> but I think the problem is their team name. So we look for team names, and I don't think anyone ever puts Buccaneers in a tweet. I think they put bucks, oh, and, yeah. that's what, and that kind of whenever someone puts buccaneers, they tend to be happy. When someone says bucks, they tend to be sad. So <laughs> when we search for buccaneers, the the buccaneers fan base is just unnaturally happy. Last year, I thought it was because of hard knocks, but the same thing is happening this year. So I think there's just some some uh, you know it depends on the search term we're looking for in the uh, right in the tweet right. All right. Well, listen, Brian, we'll let you go. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Always a pleasure to read your work. We wish you the best with it going forward. Yeah, thanks. That was Brian Burke. Brian is a senior analytics specialist at ESPN. He's a long time on the cutting edge of football analytics. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audie Weiner's in the classroom. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us. You can be here with us. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us. Email us live during the show. We'll answer businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com or add us on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle up there at WMoneyBall. Just off the phone with Brian Burke, a great analyst. He's with ESPN now. I, I don't want to belabor it, but that thing we were talking about where you've got to consider selection as well as performance, there's two stages here. There's two stages, and we're going to miss it if we're only considering the second stage. I could not agree with you more. And again, I'll go back to the story I gave. We were shocked 
at ETS that throwing away someone's actual score versus what they took, that the actual one they selected mm-hmm. was more predictive of outcomes that we were interested in than the actual score. Yeah. And, and, I, we were, and we knew it would have an effect, but we didn't think the effect size was that large. Smarter people choose better. And the and, ad- Oh, I was going to say, I mean, it's it, it sort of like it, it, that discussion kind of kind of gave me like a little bit of a, a, a light bulb in my head. You know, we, we can list off the myriad of ways in which baseball is easier to analyze than some of these other sports. You know, that it's, you know, mostly discrete events and each, you know, player is kind of independent, you know, actions are independent. But also the ordering of when players come up and everything like that is is controlled. There's no, there's much less of the selection. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, there's selection in terms of relief pitchers coming in and stuff like that. But you have less of these selection effects in baseball because it's not like you can kind of choose the situation in which you use a particular hitter. But what I thought you were going to talk to Brian about was when you talked about you know uh, for wins above replacement, it's worth more if you're in high leverage. Yeah, but who got you into that who high leverage? Yeah. Virtu- exactly. So that's where people yeah. forget. Like, oh, the person did great with the bases. Yeah, but you loaded the bases. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the consequence of it is going to be. I think the general consequence would be you under you you underrate the really good players who allow themselves because they're really good. They get put into the more challenging situations, which free up their teammates to do other things. But unless you account for that selection. You're going to underemphasize. You're going to underestimate the impact of that player. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what you know. They always said about whether it's you know whether it was Darrell Revis, Revis Island, yep. Deion Sanders. You know, you're essentially then you've got ten guys to cover the rest of their guys. But and, if you have to double team the best receiver on the other team, yeah, last I mean, time I, I checked, some, some, you got nine and they got well, ten. And that receiver should get credit for that. He's mm-hmm. in a more difficult situation because now he's got double coverage. But because he's so good, he got put into that more difficult situation. He should get credit for that. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got some other. Other sports to cover. Let's go through a few kind of quickly. They played golf here in Philadelphia last year, last week, last weekend. It got rained out on Sunday, finished Monday, but there was a major professional golf tournament. Not a major, a professional golf tournament. Right yeah, here. so just everyone knows there's the FedEx Championship, which is a combination of four tournaments. The way it works is the first tournament, it's the top 125 golfers uh, based on FedEx points during the season. Then, depend after that event, it's the top 100 golfers. Then, based on that event and points throughout the season, it's top 70 golfers. That was the BMW Championship we just had at Aronimin Golf Club here outside of Philadelphia. And now, in two weeks, there's a weekend off, is the top 30 players in the world, and that's the Tour Championship. That's the final, but only the top 30 players. Only no criterion. The only criterion to get in is were you in the top 30 in accumulated points throughout the season. Now, here are some highlights. I assume there's no cut in that tournament. There, there's no cut. There was no cut in the seventy-person mm-hmm. tournament. There was in the hundred-person and the hundred and twenty-five. There's no cut. Surprisingly, given he only started basically quarter way through the season, Tiger Woods is in the top thirty. Jordan Spieth not, and Jordan Spieth ended up thirty-first. Oh, that's wow. brutal. Which was brutal. But he took. He you know he blamed himself. He said I. He was twenty-seventh coming into this last week. He said I played badly. I knew if I played badly, I could slip out of the top third. He wasn't blaming anybody. He said, I had mm-hmm. my own destiny in my own hands. I played badly. I slipped to 31st. Um, yeah, I mean, t- I think it was amazing that Tiger Woods, um, only playing 18 tournaments, just so you know, except for his injury, you're required. Matter of fact, Jordan Spieth's going to face a penalty. You're required to play 25 tournaments 
to be considered a full-time PJ member. So Tiger Woods is number 21 in the world and number 20 in the FedEx Cup point standings, playing 18 tournaments. And so he's just had a phenomenal year. But I want to ask you guys a statistical question. So there are 30 players in the Tour Championship. This could also be a great question for Rufus Peabody, who I know looks at golf as well. Is there any reason to deviate dramatically from one out of 30? Like, is Tiger Woods saying to himself, or any of these golfers, I have basically two and a half times the odds of winning this tournament than I did the 71? Because at the end of the day, we're all about the same level. I understand, you know, even just so you know, Adi talked about this. The best golfer in the world, number one to number 70, if you look at their per stroke average per round, Point two difference. Yeah. Like yep, yep. Shane averages, Justin Rose averages sixty eight point four. The seventieth golfer might be sixty eight point six or sixty eight point yeah. seven. Is there any reason to believe any of these people don't think their odds have essentially just doubled, going from seventy to thirty? I mean, given that the the lack of sort of disparity among those top thirty, I would say yes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you basically are one over. So 30. Well, let me just tell you. Let me just make for our listeners who weren't money. I just want to go through the logic. Wait a second. I mean, you're I, Tiger Woods. Just wait a second. You're Tiger Woods and saying. But this could be totally illogical. This is my best chance to win all year. Mm-hmm. I only have to beat 29 other players. Of course, they're the other 29 best players in the world. But they were playing last week, too. I'm, so he had to beat them. And this is Cade's point. It's not just the top 10 in the football rankings. What about everyone else? Well, those other... By the way, Keegan Bradley won this last week, and he wasn't in the top 30. I mean, I'll only push back on this one over 30... In that, like, golf is relatively contextual in that, like, if you're saying Tiger Woods is looking at this tournament and saying, like, this is my best odds of the year, that may not actually be true, given that the course may not fit his particular game. I mean, I feel like there's various dynamics of individual tournaments, like the asking, course fitting your game or I'd not. I love your opinion, though. Would you go, though, the main effect, the the largest effect has to be number 30 people. golfers versus 120. Yeah, you can add in course must, effect. It, you can add anything you want. 30 golfers. Yeah. This has to be his best chance of the year to win. It has to be. I think so. I think that's reasonable. Probably. Um, that, I mean, it's one of the reasons it's my favorite It's my favorite explanation for why we get more random winners in the PGA than we do other majors. There are more entrants into the mm-hmm. PGA than the other majors. Absolutely. So um, that that's going to be coming up. And right on the heels of that will be the Ryder Cup. So it's, a, it's, it's immediately be, the week after. It's about to be a very interesting stretch in golf. We have not talked about college football. One of the reasons is because we gave NFL its due on, on its week one. Also, it was kind of a sleepy weekend in college football. Not, not much not interesting happened. Of shocks and out there. In fact, there's not that much going on this coming weekend, but here are the big games. Ohio State is playing TCU at Jerry World in Dallas, so it's not quite a home game for TCU, even though game day is going to be on TCU's campus. Ohio State's favored by 13 there. That's the number four team or so versus the number 15 team or so. That's one of the marquee games. The other big one is LSU at Auburn. This is a SEC West matchup. Auburn was right in the mix of things at the end of the last year, and they looked just as good, if not better, this year. LSU was disappointing last year and has been good so What's far. What's the spread? Spread is nine. Auburn by nine. They're hosting, of course. I got to tell you. I mean, do these spreads look kind of big to you, given that these teams are, I was or gonna do you think say, small? I was going to say, Kate, I'd love your thoughts on this. You obviously know infinitely more than I do. I was going to say the Auburn spread looks small and the Ohio State one looks big. So I have not crunched the numbers on it, but we can do it kind of real time. So we would say on a neutral field, Ohio State would have TCU by about 13. 
So mm. if you consider Jerry World neutral, which is That's probably right fair because Ohio oh, yeah. State will have half that stadium, then we have it right on there. Auburn, we have number six in the country and LSU number 11 on a neutral field would make that about a five and a half point game. So they're right on. Of course, they're going to get two and a half points for right, hosting. So it's eight, so about but, eight. but they're right on. These so are these are well calibrated games. Mike, I you know this is just. I'm glad to hear the numbers from Massey Peabody. That's good. My gut reaction is Auburn's going to win that game by more than nine. Yeah, I, and I, I think I'm just kind of miscalibrated because I'm so much more used to watching NFL where these point spreads are just we'll be outlandish. Much. Right. I mean, you know, these are the two kind of most exciting games of the week, and we've got point spreads in the eight to twelve region. Well, let me give you two that are a little bit more interesting. So uh, we also have Boise State going to Oklahoma State. So Boise is probably the top, certainly one of the top two or three group of five teams this year. Definitely. They look good so far. In the AP, they're number 17. Oklahoma State is vying for like that number three spot in the Big 12. They're hosting, though, and it's about a two-and-a-half-point line going Oklahoma State's So uh, basically new, even on a neutral field. Even on a neutral field, and it's gonna, it's a good chance for a group of five. If you want to pull for the group of five, they need to win these it's what I was It's what I was listening to on the way in this morning. People started to feel if Boise State wins this game, then they're Definitely, given the rest of their schedule, they're definitely legitimate contender to, you know. But they have to have that power five victory in order to have the credibility at the end of the year. Correct. The other game that might be interesting if you're if you're trying to find something to watch, Washington out west is is playing Utah. So this is a Pac-12 game. Utah's hosting, so they're going to be a little little a little help there. Washington still has to prove something after dropping that game to Auburn, even though they looked good. Um, Utah's always salty, saltier than we expect them to be, given that they're not quite the marquee name. But uh, Washington's favored by six and a half. Is there any reason, just because of they lost, obviously, the first game uh, Washington did, is there any reason to talk about Washington until they're seven and one, eight and one? I mean, there's no, at this point, there's nothing like they're on the way outside looking in. We can make projections of how they might yeah. be in seven or eight weeks, but they have to get to seven and one, eight and one That's for right. us to even be thinking about them, That's right? right? That's right. And there are so many other teams to talk about. It's hard. It's hard to give them the attention. So, we want to go through a couple of over-unders. That's about all we can say about the college football landscape right now. But we do have some continued interest in the NFL. So we had some kind of surprise wins this past weekend. The Bucks, the Jets, the Ravens. You know, we expect them to win, but not like that. Uh, one of our over-unders from Matty D is how many playoff appearances from those three teams. So Bucks, Ravens, and Jets. How many playoff appearances cumulative will we have from those three he set the over under at 0.5 i mean i think that question i'm gonna boil that i'm sorry eric i'm gonna boil that question down to whether the ravens make of the course. playoffs or not i was gonna say the same <laughs> thing yeah. you don't I have mean, to be sorry um actually no no I, and i'm gonna go over because i think i think the ravens are probably you know 50 50 to make the playoffs uh, you know just the I mean, even prior to them shellacking the bill, I don't take much away from them shellacking the bills. Right. The bills are awful. Right. Um, so I would have put them at about 50%. And I do think, I mean, you know, the, the Jets have certainly discernibly, the AFC is pretty wide open. They have discernibly, I think, increased their odds of making the playoffs from what I had as essentially zero up. Yeah, I'll take the over on this one, just because of the Jets' movement. Yeah, so your logic is exactly the same as mine. I'm going to take the over. I'm going to put almost 50% chance on the Ravens mm-hmm. making it themselves. And it's less about the Bucks because I still believe the NFC, nothing we saw this I mean, last week suggested that the is NFC so is not stacked. Yeah. But Pittsburgh didn't look great. I don't think Kansas City looked that great. 
The other, I think Kansas City looked fine. City looked they okay. look good, but not great. They still got up a lot of points. I think Houston did not look. Houston amazing. didn't look that great. So I'm going to say over, but because I think the Jets have a shot as well. Mm-hmm. I think the Jets have this a shot as well. This is the thing. I, I mean, as, I'm going as, over. As intuitive and reasonable as Shane's first reaction was, it's just classic psychology. We see things as Uh-oh. more binary. Well, what are your three numbers? We, we see things as more binary than they actually are. We believe we're too sure of what's going to happen. This is the NFL. We have 15 games to play. Teams come out of nowhere to make the playoff all the time. Yeah. So if you look at our numbers, and this is based on yeah. simulation calibrated to history, so yeah. it's going to incorporate all the uncertainty you usually see. You're right about Baltimore. They're just, we have them a little bit over 50-50, 0.58. But you're, you guys are way low on the other two teams. So we have the Jets at 0.43, almost 50-50. And we have Tampa Bay at 31%. And I think that just reflects how much we don't know at this stage of the season and how often a team will come from way down low. I think and most people for the Bucs, I'll just speak for the Bucs, most people wouldn't take 3-1 to one odds on them making the playoffs now. But either way, I, if your numbers are, let's call them, shrunk towards the middle more than I would have done, they're not overly, and it's hard to argue the under at point no, no, five no, here. I, I know, saying, no, you're way over. No, I'm saying, I'm agreeing with them. I'm saying it's hard to argue the under. All right, so we, the other thing we saw in the NFL is that we had these first-year coaches lose 0-7, I think, in the first week. What about the number of wins by the best first-year coach or the first-year coach with the highest number of wins? So... Colts, Giants, Titans, Cardinals, Bears, Raiders, Lions. Colts, Giants, Titans, Cardinals, Bears, Raiders, Lions. Is there any chance someone's going to get over 8.5? Matty D set the over under at 8.5. 8.5. I'll go first here. So I don't think the Giants are getting over. I definitely don't think the Bears are getting over. The Cardinals for sure not. The Colts, probably not. Lions, no. I'm going to go. If there is a team, I would put the most probability on the Titans to go over. Um, So... I'm going to go under. I don't think any of those teams will win nine games. I okay. So I think, given I think the Lions still have a good shot to go over. I think um, the Titans. That's the thing. The Lions also, and the Titans yeah, would be the two. Teams. I would put the Giants in that conversation too, to be honest, because I think the Giants are Let's not. See what Matt so Peabody says. <laughs> no, I get to break into the sim at finer detail than I can do right now to get it. But Eric, give me the back the envelope calculation where, you know. That what's what's the probability need to be before the chance of eight of them not happening is lower than point five? We have eight chances. We don't, I don't care if all of them are less like unlikely to be point five or over eight and a half. Or, or here's a way you can probably you back, eight chances. Of you these you can guys. back it out probably from Massey Peabody just with the simple assumption. Let's say nine. Like if a team that's over eight and a half wins, nine wins gets you into the playoffs. So okay. then you just add up the playoff, prob- playoff, playoff probability for, those, for these. It's going to be it's going it's going to be I'm, over. I'm right? going over on this yeah. I mean, without even thinking about it. I'm going over because you have. I think I'm going to go over too. You have eight chances at hitting that nine win mark. I don't care if all seven. of them are less. There's seven teams. You have seven chances to hit that nine win mark. I don't care if all of them are unlikely. Yeah, we, I'm getting seven rolls of the yeah, dice. Just so, just, well, so just to make sure, this is just so everyone, our Wharton Moneyball listeners, are, are following here. What Kate is talking about is what he, the equation he's asked me to solve is how many. I'm flipping seven coins. Each of them, even if they have a low probability, what's the probability? In this case, the probability is that they nine wins or more that they all come up tails. 
you have to go just the back of the envelope calculation. You'd have to say none of these teams essentially have more than like a 10 or 12% chance to get to nine wins for this to happen. And that, by the way, that when you frame it, this is why framing is so important. <laughs> yeah. When you frame it that way, I think I have to take the over. But this is a classic example of inside versus outside because you know so much about the NFL. When you go to answer this question, you go team by team. Correct. And, and, yeah. you, and you don't step back and consider the portfolio. And also, portfolio. my envelope calculation wasn't taking into account the heterogeneity of these teams. And also, my bias, which is I put some of these teams at zero when, yeah, as we know, know that's yeah, not right. going to happen. All right. So we end our shows during NFL season by looking at the slate for this weekend. Moneyball matchups. I think we have some time left, despite that lead-in. Eric, what do you got? Well, I, of course, have to talk about the game that I'm going to be at this week, which is the Philadelphia Eagles at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah. And so, um, I think... By the way, as we were here on the air, Ryan Fitzpatrick was named Offensive Player of the Week in the NFC. No surprise there. Obviously, he's a juggernaut. Yeah, it's a juggernaut. Unfortunately, I think it's coming to an end this week. Oh, um, I I like the Buck. I think the Buccaneers have a shot in the game, but you're talking about a totally different level of defense. And um, Ryan Fitzpatrick looked great against a very mediocre, very mediocre Saints defense. There were guys open all over the field. Actually, my cousin who was watching the game all the time said the Bucks could have put up seventy points. Actually, Ryan Fitzpatrick missed three open receivers for sure touchdowns. Probably could have been sixty to seventy points. Um, I think the Eagles are just too solid. I think the Eagles will be able to run the football, which has always been the Buccaneers' Achilles' heel in the last. Um, I don't think you need Nick Foles to do that much. Just well, that's the ideal just, position no, no, for the Eagles. No, no, right. Just play solid defense, run the football, mm-hmm. and win the game. So that's the game that that I'm most interested in and looked at. And of course, the other game is I want to see how good. Minnesota and Green Bay are. So I'm hoping Aaron Rodgers can play, and I'm really interested in that game, Minnesota at Green Bay, because, you know, that's a game already. You know, if Minnesota, let's say a moment Minnesota wins the game. Well, it's a road win. It's a division win. It already gives them a heads up on, I'll call it winning the division, and also I'll use the Shane Jensen rule. It gives them a heads up on one less coin flip, because they're they move up the probability of being the one or two seed. I know you say, well, it's only one game. Yeah, but in some sense, it's almost worth two because it's a head-to-head road game. So that game, to me, is absolutely crucial going forward for the NFC. I think that's a really yeah, big I mean, game. I Those think two the, games. N- the NFC North we sort of had tagged as being one of the most competitive divisions in, in football this year. I've seen nothing in the first week to suggest that it won't be. And so I think that that is kind of one of the, basically the marquee matchup. But, but probably you've got to talk about the 425 game on Sunday, no? There's a game that appears New to be England a rematch. New England Jacksonville is going to be, is a huge game. Um, you know, I, I, I think that and Kansas City at Pittsburgh are the two games that kind of stood out to me from the AFC side of the slate. New England-Jacksonville, obviously, you know, we could be, you know, this is one of these early games where you start talking about, oh, you know, 
I mean, it's it's perhaps presumptuous, but to start talking about playoff seeding and, and, and things well, like, you know, first two. round buys. They're not playing each other again. That yeah. game's worth two because yeah. you beat them in head-to-head. You win a game and you have the head-to-head win. That's, That's right. worth two wins yeah. okay, for seeding. Y'all are getting me excited about the slate for this weekend. New England's actually not favored. and the, the, We're seeing a pick here. Yeah. Massey Peabody making about a one-point dog, actually. The games that jump out to me, I like the Thursday night game. Baltimore at Cincinnati. Big is, game. Is Baltimore going to yeah. live up to it? It's a divisional game. Since he started strong as well. so um, And then there are two games that I think may not be quite as good, even as the line suggests, but I'm curious about them. Cleveland going down to New Orleans, I think they're going to get shellacked. Yep. Even yep. though seven and a half, I don't think seven and a half is enough there. And then Casey at Pittsburgh. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting one. I really want to see Casey. Mahomes look good. Um, Pittsburgh looks shaky, obviously. We make it a big line to Pittsburgh, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't live up to that. I- it's easy to look at 10 of these games and get excited because I think there's a lot of really interesting matchups this week. Really mm-hmm. exciting. All right, fellas. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This has been Cade Masty this morning with my buddies Eric and Shane. Adi was in for the first half hour. We had the whole crew in here. Daniel Bruno on soundboard, sound engineer, and runs the podcast side of our life. Thank you very much to Daniel Bruno. And Matty Datz, he runs the rest of our life. <laughs> And we are dependent on it entirely. Thank you for being here, Matt. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next time, next Wednesday. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.